Hi, welcome to Lights, Camera, Author. I'm Jim Juno, and this is the podcast which we talk with authors who write about Hollywood, music, entertainment, and basically everything in between. And I have a guest today who has a new book out. The book is out now. It's called Lead Sister, the story of Karen Carpenter. And the author's name is Lucy O'Brien. Lucy, welcome to Lights, Camera, Author. Hi, thank you for inviting me. I'm really delighted to, to be um, uh, part of your podcast. Thank you. And now, lead sister, Karen Carpenter. This is a woman who was, if you are of a certain age and you grew up with music in the 70s, there is no way you did not listen to the Carpenter's music because they had several big hits. Um, and Karen Carpenter was the lead singer for the Carpenters, her and her brother, uh, Richard. They formed a band. And and Lucy, let me let me ask you a little bit about how did Karen how did you find out about Karen Carpenter? So I first became aware of her when I was um growing up and um uh in the school choir and we sang Top of the World. <laughs> um but I just remember um the Carpenters very much um in the charts, you know, when when I was a child. And um they symbolized to us here in the UK perfection, you know, pop perfection. And also we had this idea of America as being this incredibly glamorous place with like huge cars and tall skyscrapers and 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 the, the carpenter's music seemed to match that. All right. And some of the and some of the hits are close to you yesterday and top of the world. Uh she had one of the most recognizable voices uh in pop music, didn't she? Yes, um, absolutely pitch perfect. Um, and she was, um, she she sang actually with quite an uh, uncharacteristically deep voice for a woman. Um, but that really translated well um, over the radio. And um, that's why they were so huge in, in just about every um, part of America, um, because of that that beautiful, rich sound um, that, that came not just from her, but it was the way that her and Richard's voices were kind of uh, overlayered. Um, so you have this very, very lush production. You know, a lot of people don't remember her as being a drummer, but she was one of rock music's best uh, drummers, male or female, wasn't she? Yes, absolutely. Um, and and this is what I was wanting to investigate in my book um, was... Uh, uh, really, um, because she'd been so long portrayed as this victim uh, for, for obvious reasons, you know, she died a tragically early death from anorexia. And that, that tragic, that tragedy really overshadowed her and her story. Um, and I wanted to go back and really, in a sense, reclaim her and reframe her um, and look at what she achieved Um that she, to be a woman at the top of her game in the, the 1970s music industry, she she had to be a pioneer. She, you know, the I wanted to find um, the strong woman in there who uh, achieved what she did despite having um, a, a, an awful eating disorder. Right now, and you, like you said, her death, the 
her manner of death often overshadows the rest of her story. And for those of you who who aren't familiar with her Karen Carpenter story, she died at age 32 um, from complications of a disease which was relatively unknown uh, then. It was anorexia nervosa, uh, eating disorder. Um, at least, you know, it, and even today, um, in some of the articles about your books, they they just concentrate on her on her manner of death, don't they? Yes, yes, and and that still happens. Um, but what I was struck by, you know, when I came to researching the book and I was interviewing people who knew her, who'd worked with her, you know, former lovers, um, uh, I got a, a, a much more rounded picture. Um, not just of, um, because, um, yes, she was very sweet natured. Yes, she was kind, but she also had quite a, quite an aggressive side to her, you know, in, in a way that, um, she was very driven. She was extremely ambitious. Um, she really studied her art and also she was actually a fantastic drummer and, and, um, it, it hurt her that she had to give up the drums when the Carpenters became mega successful and they were touring and the record company and her management were kind of suggesting to her that she she didn't need to play the drums now. She could just kind of stand up front and, and sort of sell the songs. And I think that created quite a crisis in her when she had to do that because she... Uh, and she said at various points how proud she was of her drumming skills and that actually that was her primary means of expression. Well, she won several awards, or at least uh, one big award for her drumming skills. Um, I believe it was the uh, the John Philip Sousa uh, Band Award yes. when she was in high yes. school. Yeah, it, it's really interesting as well, Jim, you know, that, that when... Um, in in the spring, it was uh, the 40th anniversary of her death, and there was so much um, love for her. Um, and I, you know, I was looking at um, things like Twitter and Facebook, and 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 everything that was trending and on YouTube as well was not so much her as a singer, but her as a drummer. And I thought that was really interesting that now people are kind of reevaluating and seeing that side of her that she was such a strong musician um, as well as being a singer. And she she idolized, I believe, uh, Ringo Starr, uh, even to the point where she made her parents buy her a, the same drum kit yes, that Ringo yes. used. Yes, absolutely. And and also, you know, at the age of 15, she had middle-aged um, male jazz, jazz drummers on her wall instead of kind of teen pop idols, <laughs> which I thought <laughs> was quite interesting as well. Um she really knew her music and she knew what she loved um, and had such enthusiasm for it. Now, how did how did she move from drumming into the lead singer? Um, or was she always the lead singer for the group that, that her and her uh, uh, brother founded? Um, so she and Richard, um, they, they had several band lineups um they had a kind of vocally led um uh, harmony band um called spectrum um which included members of um a choir um uh, that that they'd um been part of um with cal state when they were studying music at cal state um but um uh the the 
it was when um, they weren't getting much success with Spectrum that um, the the other members kind of left, and that just left the core of Richard um, and Karen, and also their songwriter, John Bettis. Um, and it was from that that the Carpenters were born. They then realised that they could overdub their vocals because being brother and sister, they had very um, natural organic harmonies, and that worked well. And that, and that coupled with um, Richard's love of production and kind of really finessing that sound um, meant that they they had they created this real signature sound, which was those overdubbed vocals. And she never considered herself a singer, but she considered herself a, a singer, a drummer who sings, doesn't, didn't yes, she? that's right. Yeah, so so uh, the first few years that they were together and they were touring, she would play the drums and sing at the same time. So if you see a video like Rainy Days and Mondays, that's that's Karen in her natural habitat. <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> Karen feeling comfortable, feeling happy with herself, feeling com- um, uh, where she she's um got that natural thing where she's playing and she's singing at the same time. And uh, a few musician friends I speak to say. That's an incredibly difficult thing to do, <laughs> but she, uh, that was that was her comfort zone. Um, so when she had to kind of step out from behind the drums, I think that made her feel um, quite awkward for a while, and and that in a sense she was de-skilled. You know, she uh, was she pressured by her record company after they made it big to uh, to get married. She wasn't pressured to get married exactly. Um, so this was kind of later on. Um, uh, if we kind of m- move forward to to the late seventies, um, uh, there was a period where, um, I mean, to be honest, both she and Richard had had issues and difficulties um, as time went on, and um, the, the years of touring and being in the limelight really took their toll. Um, and uh, it's been well documented that Richard was struggling um, with quaaludes and sleeping right. pills and went into rehab. But it was that moment when he went into rehab that that created a space for her to record a solo album. And she went to New York and she was working with the producer, Phil Ramone. And she um, took her music into a completely different direction. So it was much more kind of soul pop. What? Um, people used to call blue-eyed soul back in the day. Um, you wouldn't use that category now, but um, that's what it was kind of called then. Um, and she really, um, she was really going into a different direction. Um, and she was approaching thirty and kind of thinking, "I'm a woman now, and I want to reflect my experience as a as a mature woman." Um, and unfortunately, A uh, and M, even though at the beginning they were really behind the project. After she recorded it, I think they panicked because it was so different to the Carpenter's sound. It wasn't what people were used to, and they they re- refused to um, put the record out. And I think that really um, uh, had a huge impact um, on Karen psychologically. And the, the massive disappointment of that um, meant that she was panicking and she was thinking, well, what am I going to do with my life? And and, and and I've always wanted children. I've always wanted to get married and have children. Um, and that's when she um, uh, 
uh, met Tom Boris, um, a real estate developer, and and got married. But it was a very short-lived marriage. Um, he kind of took he kind of uh, took her for a lot of money, didn't he? Well, yes. I mean, this is this is the kind of um, you know. I, I was talking to one of her former um, boyfriends, Tom Barler, who said um, that. You know, when he was with her, they got they got on really, really well. This was in the late 70s. Um, so Tom Barler's a great songwriter, producer. He was working at that point with Michael Jackson and Diana Ross um, in the soundtrack um, to The Wiz. And um, uh, he, uh, both he and Karen, sensed that they could have a future together. Um, but um, he felt that that was very much frowned on by the family um, and um, people were worried that um, he was after her money and he thought that was ridiculous. But um, uh, then, um, you know, fast forward a couple of years um, and she's with this um, husband, Tom Barris, and, and Tom Barla says, well, actually, the irony is that, that the, the one person that um, she was encouraged to get married to was actually the one um, who... Uh, by by all accounts, was was interested in spending her money. Wow, um, I would be remiss if I did not ask about her her sickness. Her uh, she uh, she began looking in the mirror, and or it was it was some sort of appearance that she was at, and the, the clothing she thought made her look heavy. Yeah, and then that started the uh, the anorexia nervosa. Novosa. Yeah, that that's right. It it it's something that kind of emerged really um as uh she was more in the limelight. Um I mean we're kind of going back to about 1974, um, even even as early as that, she became very self-conscious uh seeing herself, photographs of herself and, and seeing herself on TV and thinking that she looked really heavy. Um, and then she started um, dieting and being very, very strict with, with her diet. And at first, um, uh, people were complimenting her on, on her on her looks. But then as time went on, it was clear that it had gone beyond that, that she'd, she'd, um, she was actually in the grip of anorexia, um, certainly by the mid-70s. Um, and, you know, in, in, in researching the book, uh, I... I've drawn on a lot of really recent research into um, eating disorders and anorexia in particular. Um, and uh, uh, psychiatrists talk about um, the way that anorexia becomes an entity of its own, that it, it kind of engulfs not just the person that suffers it, but also the whole family. So everyone's kind of um, pulled into this. Uh, and what you were describing there about her looking in the mirror then it affects it affected her body image so significantly that when she looked in the mirror, all she could see that she was still heavy, that she was that she's even even though the reality was was not that what she saw was that she she still as she said oh I've still got fat arms or she literally could not see um, uh, that she was wasting away. Uh, even fans were I believe were writing writing her saying or that they were they were shocked at her appearance when when they performed in person 
Yes. And um, uh, I, I talked to their tour manager, Rebecca Siegel, who said um, that they'd be touring and um, they Karen would come on stage and she said there'd be a collective gasp from the audience um, because by then um, she was really, uh, she'd lost so much weight and it was really, really noticeable at that point. Now, her doctors were not unaware uh, of her condition, and they were trying to tell her. Um, I believe her doctor was Cherry Boone was her doctor. Um, uh, so, yeah, Cherry Boone was um, actually a good friend of hers um, who was a performer on on um, the pop scene, was one of the big pop families, the Boone family. So um, the Carpenters were also a big cop pop family so I think they had some common ground there and they had an understanding and Cherry um, really helped her or tried to help her certainly as as the illness took hold because Cherry herself um, suffered anorexia and uh, she went into through a whole period of recovery and and she writes about this in her book Starving for Attention and um, uh, she was was Certainly, she said she remembers having really long conversations with Karen, and Karen was was really trying to beat it. Um, but uh, Cherry says that really what she needed to do was move right away. You know, just just go somewhere, like go to the country, go and live in Oregon for a while, like like Cherry did, mm. um, uh, and go right away from show business, right away from LA and everything that was associated with that stress. Um, but Karen just couldn't do that. She couldn't make that decision um, and to, to she, leave. Yeah. And she wanted a quick. She wanted a quick fix. To she her, did because to I mean problem. you know this was the thing about Karen. She had tremendous willpower um, and self belief, um, and I think she really thought that um, she could control this thing. That she just had to rationalize it um, uh, and. Again, like you said at the beginning, uh, uh, in the 1970s, there was there was so little awareness of what anorexia was um, and how um, radical it is, and that you you can't kind of deal with it just through talking therapy. There needs to be a whole inpatient treatment, outpatient treatment. Certainly, when it gets to that chronic stage. And she was also uh, she was taking a medication. Um... Uh, for a, a laxative, and it shocked me that was it like up to ninety tablets per night. Is that what she was taking? Yeah, so she would take you know uh, entire um, boxes of the stuff, but uh, maybe partly to dispose of the evidence. Um, but you know, this was the other thing that that I I found in in my research was that um that it's actually now um equated with um an addiction that the 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 whole way that the illness takes hold is like uh, an addiction so using uh, the the purging and using the laxatives um was a habitual behavior that that kind of in its own strange way made her feel safe um, because to put on weight um, was far worse <laughs> in, uh -huh. in, that, in that paradoxical way, you know. That, um, but obviously, it was all taking its toll on her body and physically um, 
it was all too much for her body. Here in the States, there's been a lot of uh, stuff written about the treatment she received from Stephen uh, Levencron. I believe, I hope I pronounced that right. Yeah. You know, um, even one one media outlet called it a radical treatment. Was it was it really as radical? I as... think it's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was seen as that at the time because, um, again, you know, nineteen seventies uh, psychotherapy was really in its in its its early stages. Um, now, um, uh, it's we we have entire systems and traditions of different kinds of psychotherapy, um, and it's much more um, uh, aspects of eating disorders or self-harm or different mental health issues. There's so many different ways now to understand um, mental health and to deal with it. Um, so really, um, Stephen Levencon was kind of trying out um, his own methods, his own mode of practice. Um, it became his specialism. There was a lot of criticism of him at the time. I think I think the family felt that not enough was happening, not enough was changing but in effect he said you know i i worked with as best i could with 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 what i could um in the uh, by then um the talking therapy was the only treatment that karen would accept and also by then it was actually um uh really too little too late um it might have been like say cherry Boone O'Neill said that she also was prescribed medication and that really helped her as well as 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 well as the therapy. But in the short term, uh, it seemed like his uh his treatment worked. I mean, he put her in the hospital, he uh confiscated all of her all of her medications. Um yes, so, I, I think yeah. I think what people were surprised at was how strict he was. Um but you know now in standard psychotherapy, um, the boundary lines are clear. You know all all um, good uh, psychiatrists and, and psych- psychotherapists work with strong boundaries um, and and kind of um, uh, a very clear program. And and really that's that's what he was that's what he was attempting to do. Um, and that was his method that he evolved. And and I think at the time that was seen as very radical. Now, on February 4th, 1983, unfortunately, they they found her in her uh, in her closet of her parents' home. It was a walk-in closet. Um, she was not dead at the time. She was uh, in cardiac arrest. But she eventually passed away that later that day uh, at age 32, a really shame that uh that this talent was gone so soon wasn't it yeah no and i th- i think everybody was hugely shocked i talked to alan okin who was um working at AM at the time and he said it was like this black cloud um over the studio lot uh, he said it was just complete silence you know there, there were people um who went into the work that day but no one was talking um and um you know, just talking to everyone who knew her or who, who was close to her, they said um, it kind of left this big gaping hole um, and and maybe also a sense of collective guilt, which is inevitable. I, I, I 
remember the same, you know, after Amy Winehouse died, is there was lots of questions, you know, in the industry, is like, how did we fail her? Um, and it, and the, Karen's death, I think, was the beginning of a very important cultural conversation um, and also a, a, a conversation about mental health and eating disorders. And um, and it's taken a long time, but, you know, there, there, there is more awareness now of how to look after our musicians and, and, and our artists in, in the music industry, um, that there, there are going to be issues if we kind of overwork uh, people that who are often really quite sensitive people and often vulnerable. Um, uh, so there's so much more awareness now amongst managers and record labels about um, how to look after their artists. And that's the one good thing. If anything good can come out of this, uh, her early death is that, yes, it did raise awareness and allowed people to, who may not have sought treatment now, now seek it without the uh, without the uh, judging eyes. Absolutely, that's what's so important. And I, and I think you know, doing the book, that's what I found heartbreaking was, you know, she was such a courageous woman. She really was, but she was dealing with this nightmare on her own, essentially. Um, and just think, you can only imagine how hard that must have been. Um, but now um, there are so many ways that um uh you know it's not just it's not a condition that just afflicts women it affects affects men it affects trans people it affects it affects everyone um so there's the thing to remember is that there's always a helpline there's always support available um and that you you don't need to suffer in silence and that's that's a actually is a great thing. So if any of you out there are suffering from anorexia nervosa or or know someone who is, please uh, seek treatment and hopefully everything will turn out okay. Um, the lead singer, I'm sorry, lead sister is the book, The Story of Karen Carpenter. And the author is Lucy O'Brien. Lucy, I want to thank you for being on Lights, Camera, Author today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.